Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, this is John Powers, and welcome back to Experts Only. Today, we have our second episode in a partnership with the New England Clean Energy Council and their Navigant webinar. We have a really fascinating conversation about the renewable energy industry and the opportunities over the next decade. We've got a phenomenal panel, include Doran Hole, who's a senior vice president and chief financial officer of Amoresco, Noah Shaw, who's a partner and co-chair of the renewable energy practice at Hotch and Russ, based in New York, Zoe Berkery, who's the vice president of assets here at Clean Capital, and Jason Kaplan, who's the chief operating officer for Power Market Solutions. I hope you enjoy the conversation, really focusing on how we're going to get to help solve our climate crisis over the next 10 years. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the second webinar of the Navigate webinar series from the Northeast Clean Energy Council in collaboration with Clean Capital. Thank you, John, for being with us today and moderating this session dedicated to renewable energy. My name is Catarina Madeira, and I run Navigate. This webinar series has the invaluable support from all Navigate sponsors, such as the state agency NYSERDA, who works to advance energy innovation, technology, and investment in New York State. Thank you so much for your support. Before passing the word to John, I'd like to kindly remind you to stay on mute to avoid any sound problems. Uh, please feel free to use the Q&A feature or question questions feature on GoToWebinar to send questions. And I'd like to advise you as well that uh, at the end of the session, you'll receive a very short survey. Uh, thank you for completing it and uh, sharing your feedback with us. And uh, tweet with us um, throughout the webinar using the hashtag NECC Live and the handle cleancapital underscore. And now it is my pleasure to hand over to John Powers, the Clean Capital co-founder and president. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Katarina. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This webinar today is also going to be recorded as part of the expert-only podcast, which focuses on the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. Really excited today is we're with the topic of renewable energy opportunities for the next decade. Our webinar will focus on the future of renewable energy, highlighting technological advancements, innovation opportunities, policy changes, other things that are going to really catalyze the growth and continue to sort of transform our energy sources. What I really want to do is explore the future of what the next decade looks like, but also step back and look at the last decade and look at the just incredible uh, growth we've had. And we're lucky to have amazing panelists who have uh, deep expertise and are working for really incredible companies working to change uh, the face of our energy mixture here in the United States. The last decade was remarkable. It was game-changing. 10 years for the renewable energy industry, it went from it being a nascent alternative energy to a mainstream energy, and in many areas, the cheapest power, cost of power. The U.S. is twice the renewable power generating capacity today compared to a decade ago. And for instance, there's 80 times more solar capacity online today than at the start of the last decade. You know, and many of us do this uh, because we want to help address the climate crisis. And, you know, some numbers really show the progress we're making. Coal went from meeting 45% of the U.S. demand in 2010 to just over 20%, 23% in 2019. Coal, the carbon intensity of the power sector continues to decline. The last decade, it fell over uh, nearly 25%. Uh, we still have a ton of work to do, and I do want to look forward at, at, at the, the, the future here, but I, I do want to step back with our guests and look back, have them highlight a little bit of work they've done in the industry and you know how they sort of seen the growth of the space. So I'm going to first start with Doran Hole, who is the senior vice president and chief financial officer at Amoresco. Doran, you've got a deep history in the industry. You're now working for one of the most respected public firms in the space. Can you t first talk a little bit about your background and how have you seen the industry change in the last 10 years? Sure thing. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me, and thanks everybody for joining. Um, so. So my interest in the renewable energy industry started probably right around 10 years ago. Um, in 2010, I was working for Deutsche Bank. We were starting to pitch debt service and uh, tax equity with respect to 
large utility scale projects. And I, I do recall one one opportunity in particular uh, that SunPower was pushing at the time in Southern California as being kind of what kicked it off. And, and from there, I, I just became fascinated with the potential for deployment, in, in especially in the solar space, seeing SunPower, seeing Sun Edison, seeing Sunrun, Vivint, all these residential solar companies, solar cities start to you know proliferate, start using structured credit techniques that we were working on, such as securitization, and realizing that there was a tremendous amount of potential for cleaning the, you know, basically cleaning the grid. And so in a, uh, 2015, I decided to step out of the banking industry and move directly into industry. So I spent a few years working directly in solar on the development side. That was all both in the kind of CFO uh, role as well as uh, a CEO role, uh, most recently at Renesola in, in North America. Joined Amoresco about one year ago and uh, saw there an opportunity to really see a company that was a leader in energy efficiency and quickly expanding in renewable energy across a number of technologies, not just solar, but also uh, combined heat and power, uh, renewable natural gas. Uh, and within the energy efficiency space, uh, seeing it deploy technologies as a you know an independent integrator into any number of you know basic energy efficiency measures, boilers, chillers, HVAC systems, all the way to uh, LED lighting, controls, microgrids, battery storage, solar. You know, taking this energy efficiency concept and using the financial that have been enabled out there, the uh, especially energy savings, performance contracting, energy savings agreements uh, to help you know kind of really expand and 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 help customers offset their carbon footprint and save money. That's in that's you know Amoresco itself is you know a leading energy efficiency solutions provider, probably you know thousand plus employees. We're, we're spread across the country and. 70 plus offices operating in the US and Canada and the UK and peripherally in a couple of other uh, places in Europe you know we're we're tracking carbon footprint with over you know 11 million metric tons of CO2 in uh, in 2019 i think across our projects and our projects that we're installing on behalf of customers as well as the energy assets that we own we're we're owning and operating approximately 250 megawatts worth of plants so that's a mixture of landfill gas, landfill gas going direct use, landfill gas going into electricity, uh, solar, a little bit of uh, battery storage standalone, as well as uh, a good bit of renewable natural gas. So very, very exciting time for the company as we see the market opportunity growing across all of the advanced technologies, smart buildings, um, again, more, more demand and, and a potential expansion of renewable natural gas. And then um, the you know the battery storage and microgrid opportunity, the resiliency opportunities, uh, we think are are quite strong. Fascinating. I um, look forward to coming and talking more about sort of the, the next phase of that. And and I want to go next to, to Noah Shaw. Uh, Noah is a partner and co-chair of the Renewable Energy Practice at Hodgson Russ, uh, based here in New York. But Noah and I have a long track record. We worked both worked in the Obama administration, and Noah later went to serve in the Cuomo administration. No, you've seen the good that the government can do in this space, helping to capitalize the market and really helping it grow. Talk a little bit about your experience in the public policy space and sort of the role of sort of policy of the last 10 years to help the market grow. Thanks, John. And uh, thanks for the invitation to be here. And it's great to great to talk to everybody. You know, when I joined the Obama administration in 2012, I actually joined the Department of Energy because I had a, well, in part because I had a background um, in government investigations. Uh, and there was a little company called Solyndra that was having some problems in California and a couple others. Uh, I, and I came from Mintz Levin, which many of you are, are, I'm sure, well familiar with. But over time, especially after I got to know Richard Kaufman reasonably, reasonably well, who was senior advisor to the, to the Secretary for Finance, I started to move into more of the actual implementation work, working with the Loan Programs Office, working with the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, uh, working with the Domestic Policy Council and CEQ and, and others to put together the Climate Action Plan when I think, John, you and I ended up in uh, conference rooms and EELB a few times yeah. together on that one. And it became very clear to me um, that this was a train that was on tracks that people really couldn't even fathom the potential of. So when I got the 
when I got the opportunity to come up to NYSERDA and be general counsel, where I was uh, general counsel from 2014 through uh, last year, I actually walked out the door just as the governor was um, signing the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is, which is sort of the signature climate law for New York State. Just dropping um, the mic and when you walked out the door? Yeah, well, <laughs> I had, you know, my role was uh, the lawyer role, but, uh, but, right. but it, was, it was a great time to leave. And you could, over the course of that period of time, the trajectory and the cost uh, declines and the technology advances and uh, the business model maturation that you saw uh, frankly outstripped anything that anybody could have um, predicted. And in particular, you look at the cost curves related to offshore wind, or you look at where utility-scale solar is and what's happened with utility-scale solar, even in a place like New York over the course of the last couple or three years. I think it puts it puts a lens on what's going to happen in the next decade, sort of in a place where the unpredictability should be welcome. I mean, as we were writing the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act and talking about you know, 85% greenhouse gas reduction by mid- middle of the century and 100% clean energy in New York State by 2040. There were a lot of naysayers out there who said, that's not feasible. How could you possibly write something into law that, you know, where the technology, you know, just doesn't get us there right now? And I think the answer to that is, um, unless you put those markers down and unless you have faith in the advancement of technology, which which we should have faith in, um, because it's it's exceeded our expectations year over year, every year for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, you're not, you're not making good policy. So what I see um, coming up and what we at Hutch and Russ do, uh, Hutch and Russ uh, is, a, is a New York-based firm, but we also have offices in Toronto and down in Florida um, and Albany and, and New York City. I'm sitting in the office in Saratoga Springs right now. Buffalo, yep, the, the, the flagship in Center Buffalo. Center of the University. Um, we, we represent uh, a broad spectrum of both government and um, developers and investors looking to acquire, looking to build, looking to uh, understand the regulatory framework uh, within various different markets, uh, bulk storage, distributed solar, uh, utility-scale solar, onshore wind, offshore wind. In fact, I'm happy to, announce, to say, be able to say today that we were just engaged by the state of Maryland uh, to help them update their regulatory uh, structure for their offshore wind program to yes. get to their goals under their their recent um, their recent legislation, the Clean Energy Jobs Act in Maryland from from last year. So we we're sort of we're we're across the spectrum. We've got a great team that's dedicated solely to um, renewable energy, plus uh, you know re- regulatory and transactional issues, plus all the folks who support us in the real estate shop and the environmental shop and the litigation shop when when that is needed. Because building a project, as everybody knows, is um, a multifaceted uh, exercise. So throughout that, you know, you sort of get this, the aperture of, of the perspective of the kinds of technologies that are needed and which ones are headed in which directions uh, is becoming more clear and less clear all at the same time, right? Like we know which models really work now, but we also know which technologies aren't quite mature enough. Let's say long duration storage. Let's say um, a lot of grid tech and transmission technology, uh, certain, you know, floating, floating offshore wind. Those are the sorts of technologies that as they mature are going to open up whole new markets and whole new sets of uh, sort of opportunities over the course of not only the 2020s, but also, frankly, the 2030s, because a lot of our, our, uh, our view for, for a lot of the progressive states' goals is, is more 2040, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to focus on this next decade, because I think because the goals are 2040, 2050, whether it be some of the progressive states or, you know, you have some states going 100% renewables in those windows, we won't get there unless we chop wood here in the next 10 years uh, and continue to, to sort of scale at the rate the rate we're doing it. I want, uh, I want to go to our, sort of our next panelist uh, and, you know, look back at the last 10 years and so the next the next 10 years for a second about really opportunity in this space. Zoe and I have been working together for a long time. No, uh, when I was at the White House, Zoe actually interned for me at CEQ before going on and uh, creating an incredible career and, and becoming part of Clean Capital later. And Zoe, you're an emerging. First of all, Zoe's the VP of Asset Management here for the team of Clean Capital. You're an emerging leader in the industry. Uh, you've been in the policy space, now the sort of the finance space. Now you're managing almost 200 megawatts of distributed energy systems. How you know how have things changed for folks looking to get into the industry? Starting, you know, looking back to where you were, you know, coming out of college to an internship, did you ever imagine sort of what this space could look like today? And then what, 
advice do you give folks looking to get into the sort of the next iteration of the industry? Yeah, thanks, John. So I think it's interesting, and this will come as no surprise to, to folks, that in 2012, when I was working at CEQ under the Obama administration, it was just a very different landscape when it came to policy and the support that the renewable industry and clean energy as a whole was receiving. Um, at CEQ, we were looking at all, working on a whole host of executive orders and the CAFE standards that were so impactful. After CEQ, I worked at the Business Council for Sustainable Energy that was almost, during my tenure there, was almost solely focused on the Clean Power Plan and, um, and the Paris Agreement, either, which are in play any longer in, um, in this country. But what's interesting is that um, while you know, policy is so incredibly important, I think the markets in the private sector have really spoken on this and they haven't really skipped a beat. Um, Larry Fink um, at BlackRock's letter at the beginning of this year you know, stating that um, uh, you know that that he sees the climate crisis as reshaping finance as we know it and continuing to do so for the foreseeable future, um, I think sort of sums it up very well. And I think um, you know, clean capital has also kind of started on that with that mission of of bringing more investments into the clean energy space um, at large. Um, so as John mentioned, um, I'm involved, I'm the New York chapter leader for RISE, which is the renewable uh, women in renewable industries and sustainable energy um, group, as well as involved with CLI, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. So I'm sort of constantly having conversations with um, young professionals looking to get into this space. Um, and it's, it's interesting that even just 10 years ago, I think, you know, folks are thinking about it in such a more holistic lens. Um, I think, you know, policy, innovation, technology, finance are all part of, um, of school programs now, whereas it, it used to just be policy or you were in engineering or you were in finance. And I think where all of those are coming together is just incredibly impactful for the industry. Um, and I think we'll see that shaping um, in, in the coming years. Um, I'll also add, I think there is, um, especially given the current, you know, the current, um, current events going on, I think there is going to be a larger push to increase diversity in the energy and finance industries and clean energy finance as well, where those overlap. I think we could have an entire series of webinars on, on the benefits that that will bring to the industry as well. And I think young folks are really thinking about that and that climate change isn't, um, isn't just about, you know, uh, about climate change, you know, there's environmental uh, justice aspects as well that I think folks getting into the industry are more focused on than, than previous. So I think, We'll see that kind of being a larger part of the conversation as well. Um, and I'll add, I think now there is a whole new set of challenges for the industry. We have an aging renewables fleet um, where we're seeing conversations about repowering popping up left and right that you know wasn't really a conversation a few years ago. Clean Capital now has, as John mentioned, over $500 million in assets under management, 184 megawatts across 124 projects. And we're, we're thinking very critically on how we get the most out of those facilities and how we can, um, you know, I guess also harness the uh, better technologies going forward and, and increase efficiency as well on the way. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll dive more into that in a little bit. And then finally, Jason. Uh, Jason Kaplan's the Chief Operating Officer for Power, Power Market Solutions. But Jason, you've got a sort of an immense uh, background in the space and decided to go into one of the uh, most exciting sort of emerging markets We're here around community solar. For, uh, before diving into power markets and community solar, can you talk a little bit about your background and sort of why you decided to enter, enter the fray in the community solar space? Thanks, John. And thanks for everybody for joining. Um, yeah, my, my road to power market is definitely a windy one. I really kind of wanted to be in this industry really because my background, I, I graduated from Vermont Law School um, and with a degree in environmental law and policy. And I wanted to affect change, right? I, want, I came out sort of bright eyes in 2008, 2009, and there was then no opportunity for young lawyers to do that affect change. Fortunately, I, I landed in a, a law firm that was doing some environmental law, but it was really uh, around kind of a super fun litigation. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Superfund litigation, essentially, I was helping uh, a client fight for who should pay for the cleanup of a contaminated property. Really, these things can go on for years, and, and that was not the kind of a change that I was hoping to affect. Um, and I really wanted to kind of push my my career into renewable energy because really that's where I felt like the development of these clean energy assets would be of the greatest benefit to us uh, as a society and, and to really kind of clean our grid. Um, I found my way to a small startup company called United Wind which we were developing small wind energy turbines uh, really up in upstate New York. Uh, and I really got trial by fire working for a developer, um, really in kind of a, a nascent technology, 
one that, frankly, distributed wind is sort of, I would say, the redheaded stepchild of the renewable energy industry. Um, but nevertheless, I we were able to secure financing with the New York Green Bank with uh, developing uh, over 100 small wind turbines across upstate New York. And I, again, I, I got that experience that I'd never had before in understanding the risks uh, and challenges there is in developing renewable energy assets uh, in New York, but certainly, you know, broadly. Um, I came to Power Market really through uh, a connection I made through the Clean Start program, um, which is a program that is uh, an NYU certificate program in renewable energy, um, but also um, facilitated and sponsored through the Urban Future Lab, um, which I also have to give uh, many props to the Urban Future Lab, uh, Pat Sappensley, their executive director, and Joe Silver and Giro and the team there. Because frankly, they have enabled the growth of clean energy in the state um, through the incubation of some of the most prominent clean energy startups. Um, I've I love working in the clean energy, the clean tech, the clean startup uh, world. My wife might disagree in terms of the high risk, high reward elements to it. Um, but fortunately, uh, I found my way to power market really uh, through through those connections. Um, a, you know, the Urban Future Lab is, is sponsored uh, from NYSERDA and National Grid, uh, and they do a tremendous job there to uh, support these young clean uh, energy companies that are coming to to help solve some of the big, big, biggest challenges. And so certainly... Anyone who on this call or the webinar who is uh, a young clean, a clean energy entrepreneur uh, and maybe one person or a team of three or so and want to kind of, uh, you know, get the support and, and kind of be a part of a community, I certainly look at look at the Urban Future Lab and you know, feel free to connect me after this uh, to give you some intros there as well. Um, but frankly, through that, you know, they've helped. Uh, Power Market was a resident of the Urban Future Lab for, I think, now four. Well, it was four years, maybe five years They've been a little longer than uh, you know typically uh, companies are, but we just loved working there because everybody was fantastic and they supported us. Power Market is a company. We are a, a turnkey servicer uh, of community solar projects throughout the country, wherever really community solar uh, exists. Uh, we provide services of the cons- uh, subscriber acquisition, education, enrollment, billing, and support um, for those who are developing and owning community solar assets, whether that be third-party developers. Uh, energy retailers and even utilities. Um, some of our earliest clients at Power Market, uh, and this is going on, you know, five years we've been a part of this industry, uh, were the likes of Rocky Mountain Power and Detroit Edison that were building out kind of in these regulated utility markets a product to offer community solar uh, to their customers. No doubt, over the last you know three or so years, the market has really been driven uh, by third-party developers, uh, independent developers of these assets, uh, for which we're working very closely with the most prominent. Uh, really in the state of New York and, and broadly. Right now, we're working in, in nine states. Um, we've got 150 megawatts of community solar under management. Um, and just last year, we provided kind of, you know, over $3 million worth of, of billing to uh, community solar subscribers, uh, you know, through our portfolio. Uh, and it's no doubt a market, as, as you kind of uh, indicated, John, that is really in its infancy, but it's really on the precipice of explosion um, and, and really looking forward to kind of talking more about um, the work that we do at Power Market and, and really the community solar market uh, generally. Yeah, I mean, community solar is a great example of something. I think when if you, if you went back and interviewed someone in 2010, it wasn't even on people's radars as an idea, and it could be really a game changer here in the next decade. And I'm going to use that to sort of transition into the sort of policy. I'm going to, uh, there's a series of rounds of questions for the audience. You know, the first, I'm going to talk a little bit about policy and then uh, sort of corporate demand and demand that's been changing out there and a couple other sort of key topics. If you have questions, please put them into the uh, question feed, uh, and we'll, we'll get to them as we go. But I'm going to uh, keep the mic as a moderator here in the beginning and sort of dive into the first round, which I do want to focus on policy. And, and Noah, you, you've been living in the federal. You know, we we have the last few years been living in sort of a federal policy drought around energy policy, right? After there was extensive movement in the first half of the decade to get things moving, but the market continues to grow. And projects continue to be built, and we continue to scale. You know, what is what, what do you see as sort of the federal role in policy here for the next ten years uh, as we sort of work towards twenty thirty? Well, that's a that's a big question. Um, you know, I'll, I'll probably I'll probably cheat questions. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably cheat a little bit and just pick a few things that um, that I think are are really uh, important. One is we have to get the standalone storage tax credit figured out. Like the fact that standalone storage is not eligible uh, right. for an ITC is, is ridiculous and, and that needs to be fixed. Um, you know, I remember when I was at NYSERDA, we actually did a, as part of our sort of, you know, state advocacy, we did a calculation of, 
of the um, sort of the, the savings to ratepayers uh, to reach the goal versus how how that bill was scored. Um, and it was wasn't even close. I mean, it was so clearly a value to ratepayers, not to mention the industry, that um, there just aren't a lot of good uh, rationales, frankly, for not moving forward with that, um, especially as storage becomes and, and potentially long duration storage becomes so much more important to the grid and uh, to the next uh, item, which I'll talk about, which is, uh, you know, fixing sort of the FERC tra- Order 1000 transmission uh, policy, not to mention uh, the MOPR and, and other sort of wholesale market uh, issues that have uh, thrown a lot of uncertainty and complexity into uh, you know, folks' long-term uh, cost right. curves and revenue and revenue predictions. Uh, you know, I don't know that the industry necessarily needs uh, you know every little ask that it that it throws up on the on the on the board, but it does need certainty. It does need at least the the hope of consistency between and among jurisdictions, if not between zones. I mean, even within the NISO, there are different rules that apply in different zones. That sort of the rationalization and the um, reformation of the FERC uh, sort of position with respect to renewables or other asset resources that receive state subsidies, I think, is absolutely essential for for scaling of uh, especially um, storage and the next uh, technology that I'll talk about, which is offshore wind. Offshore wind also uh, is right now without uh, much support from a tax policy point of view. Um, that that credit needs to be re-upped uh, in part and in large part because uh, not only is there an extraordinary potential of that industry to support the decarbonization of the grids up and up and down the east coast and frankly on the west coast once floating technology is is uh, economic, but the economic development and jobs potential of that industry frankly makes everything else that we're doing look like you know tiddlywinks. Uh, <laughs> you know you're talking. Thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs for each project where the average uh, salaries are in the six figures. Uh, you're talking about supply chains uh, into the, you know, if, if we if we reach the goals between the, the East Coast states, you know, over over $100 billion. Uh, and companies from all over the world looking to, um, to make the East Coast sort of the hub of that industry for decades to come. So there, there are those those sort of items, I think, from the federal level, tax policy with respect to storage and offshore wind, and uh, bringing some rational decision making and consistency to the FERC with respect to both transmission and uh, the ability of renewable resources to clear in the capacity markets, I think are are sort of the, the first and most important things to do. Uh, and I have no doubt that if there is a, um, I have little, well, I have no doubt that if there is a change in the administration um, this winter. Those items will be at the top of the list of the people who are who are tackling this stuff uh, in the White right. House and, and the agencies involved. Excellent. Now, Doran, Amoresco's got an extensive national footprint. You guys are playing in, uh, a, I'm not sure, in all 50 states, but a, a majority of them, right? And you guys have seen firsthand the importance of the state roles in developing these markets. It, but it makes it challenging because you're sort of managing 50 different chiefdoms and understanding the roles of policy and, and net metering or permitting or whatever in those states. First, you know, talk a little bit about the roles of states sort of in the next the next decade. And then, you know, are there specifically like any emerging markets that you're excited about at the state level that, you know, you guys really see sort of opportunities to scale in? So I think the, um, I mentioned it in my opening comments, you know, we have about 70 offices around the country and we feel like that local presence is what makes a huge difference in terms of our ability to navigate all of the local uh, needs, whether it be permitting or interconnection rules or, uh, you know, simply uh, contracting environment because we're, you know, we, we are, especially in the energy efficiency space, you know, our core customer base is quite a lot of government customers, federal government, municipalities, states, et cetera. The state governments themselves uh, do have a role in terms of leading the charge for what incentives and, and, and where dollars need to be going in terms of greening their own economies. And as a result, you know, we do spend quite a bit of time with state governments. Uh, you know, we've, of course, since the early, early years of the company, when, when it was founded in 2000, 
have been following this, uh, you know, energy savings performance contracting framework, which is a financing tool to allow customers to finance their energy efficiency projects using the savings that will be generated in the future as measured by an audit of the energy systems. You know, that is something that is enabled by state legislation in a number of places. Um, and, and the federal government has its own kind of set of rules as it, as it relates to that. I think the states also continue to be important in terms of setting out the frameworks for renewable goals. And for example, the low carbon fuel standard in California has been an important player in the development of renewable natural gas and will continue to be. You, you see Oregon starting to talk about implementing something like that. You, you see, in fact, north of the border, I, I believe a couple of the provinces in Canada considering similar things. So I think those state incentives are, are quite important. I, I would, I would, however, go back to the fact that, you know, like getting things done in these markets, really requires local presence and local right. uh, local people who are members of the community. They are, you know, connected, whether it be politically or just environmentally being, you know, being stewards of, of their own communities. Uh, those, those are, those are really important characteristics of, of being able to, to carry out what it is we collectively as a, you know, as an industry are trying to do in terms of specific markets. So we have, Deep involvement in local policy making sort of, I guess, committees, some of the industry groups, uh, you know, especially in the Northeast. Of course, the company founded in, in Massachusetts. So, you know, the Northeast and New England are, uh, are big, big parts of our overall, overall is, market. Is but, your biggest footprint uh, in Boston? Go ahead. Is the biggest, biggest office is in Boston. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, our, our office is outside of Boston. We've, for years done energy efficiency and renewable energy installations, both, you know, solar landfill and traditional ener energy efficiency and some of the advanced technology energy, energy efficiency projects for a number of municipalities, hospital systems, universities, et cetera, in the, uh, in the state. And, you know, that, that, uh, that, that's not a well though. We, we are a regionally managed company. So whether we're developing renewable energy projects, to put on our balance sheet and sell the power, sell the sell the renewable natural gas, or we're doing an energy efficiency project for uh, for a particular client. You know those those projects, those those opportunities are effectively made by the same kind of groups of uh, origination and sales people that we have spread around the country. And so it's a uh, it's kind of a collective, regionally managed uh, group of uh, group of sales folks. And I think it's important to manage the company that way because the um, uh, you know the technical expertise uh, also needs to be local. You know, understanding how to engineer projects in you know Southern California is very different than uh, the design and engineering of a similar project in the Northeast. Right. Um, you know, yeah, imagine market wise, how to get how to get your permit moving through a certain certain utility <laughs> is a lot different in a place like Colorado than in New York than Massachusetts and whatever. Of course, and um, as we all know, you know, you're not going to send a guy with a Boston accent out to <laughs> you know a town hall in the Midwest to try to get a permit. Not a Patriots jersey. Um, <laughs> we've probably all experienced that in one one way or another. We do see opportunities across the board in multiple markets. There isn't any particular region, you know, we see opportunities for, you know, additional energy efficiency, renewable energy. It's still in Massachusetts as, the, as they've been a very forward thinking state, uh, New York, especially um, as, uh, as, you know, our cooperation with, with power markets is coming to fruition. There's a variety of other states that, uh, that, that we, yeah. uh, we think are a good opportunity. Excellent. Thanks, Oren. And so I'm going to skip ahead of technology here in a second because uh, we're getting a lot of questions about technology from folks. But before doing that, I think it's, you know, we'd, we'd be short sighted if we don't talk about community solar as a policy and the important role that it has both in helping to grow the marketplace, but also providing opportunity to uh, sort of uh, all different levels of the social economic community get involved in clean energy for the first time. Jason, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, first of all, explain to people that may not know what is community solar. You know, how is it sort of viewed in in these different states? How is it sort of coming together? And then with that, like, I do want to hit a little bit on the topic of sort of 
that creating opportunity for all to, to be part of the clean energy space. Yeah. So community solar really is sort of the pure sense of democratization of participation in clean energy. You know, most people, you know, from, you know, a residential mass market perspective, when they think about clean energy, they think about the big wind turbines or large solar projects or even solar on a roof. But no doubt that excludes everybody who either is a renter or a student, maybe the pitch of the roof isn't right, maybe the roof's shaded, but they still obviously are really eager to participate in our clean energy future. And so how can they possibly do that? You know, we always think like, what's the thing I can do to really affect change and be a part of that? Community solar really is that answer because really the only, you know, well, not all the only, but one of the, the, the fundamental eligibility criteria is that you have a utility account. Most people do. And what community solar is, is that you would sign up to be a participant in a community solar project, which is a larger solar project, you know, between 500 kW to 5 megawatts. That's a project that's installed somewhere within your utility territory. So if you live in, you know, Manhattan, uh, there may be a 2 megawatt solar array located in Westchester within the Con Ed service territory. Um, and theoretically, you'd go to powermarket.io backslash marketplace, and you'd find all the different community solar projects that may be located in that utility territory for which you live. And you can click and learn that really by signing up, by putting in your basic information, your name, email, address, utility account number, some other details, and signing what we call a subscription agreement, you can join a community solar project without any installation on your property, without any disruption. And the fundamental value proposition to community solar is that once you're enrolled on the project, essentially that solar array is being developed and constructed. You have no obligation to do anything. Uh, there's no, you don't have to maintain it. You don't have to worry about it. But once that project is operational and putting in clean energy into the grid, your utility will be applying credits onto your utility bill commensurate with your participation. And when I say participation, we call it sort of the allocation that you have to a project. And what companies like Power Market does is that when we, when you initially uh, apply to join one of our community solar projects, we'll look at your last 12 months of energy usage to see, based on how much energy you use, how much of that solar array should we apply as a credit to your bill. Uh, and so really this is kind of where we talk about you know, the nuances between different states, because community solar fundamentally is a state-enabled uh, program. Uh, the you know legislative bodies in New York and Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, Maryland, New Jersey, you know wherever it is, they're sort of state based, and so you unequivocally see differences in the way that community solar is rolled out in those states. Um, you know, you know some of the fundamental nuances really around kind of how are community solar credits valued in states like Massachusetts? There's sort of a fixed value that when you as a, a community solar developer apply and you get a statement of qualification. You get sort of a, a number that here's the value of every kilowatt hour that's going to be generated for my community solar project for the next 20 years. In states like New York, however, we have something called the value stack or the VEDER credit. And there's no doubt elements within that value stack. And trust me, I do not want to get involved in kind of going through each of those elements and, and how they're valued. But never only if you want to see billion. the attendee number go way down. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, but, ne but nevertheless, there's variability there and certain elements of that value stack can change over time. And so, you know, we look at, you know, uh, just the way that these programs roll out. You also look at the subscriber side um, in terms of how are, how should certain community solar projects be subscribed? Are they should be focused on commercial, you know, subscribers? So if you look at a state like Minnesota, uh, the way that the program was kind of built sort of incentivized kind of, you know, just having a relatively small number of large commercial offtake as being kind of the participants of community solar. You look at a state like New York, however, because the value of those credits are dependent on the rate class of those uh, off-takers, having residential rate takers and small commercial rate takers are more beneficial. And so you see much more mass market residential customers participating in community solar in New York. Um, and so for a company like you know, Power Market, we, we need to have our finger on the pulse of how the different state policies uh, will affect how we go about acquiring and engaging customers. Because ultimately for us, we want to optimize the value of our community solar projects for our clients. And so it's critically important that we understand all the nuances and the rules of, can we have an anchor subscriber? You know, in New York State, you can have 40% of your community solar project taken up by one or many sort of demand meter anchor subscribers. The remaining 60% taking up small residential mass market non-demand subscribers. In Massachusetts, again, differently, you can have 50% of your project, not 40%, 50%. So as a, really, all, the, all this to say is that in different states, the rules are different. The primary fundamental nature of what community solar is, though, is, is the same. And from the kind of the customer, the, the participant perspective, in that by participating, you are supporting clean energy, you are joining a community solar project in your community, 
you're getting credits applied to your bill. In some states, we will charge you for the value of those credits at a discount. So you might get $100 worth of community solar credits on your bill in a month, and we'll charge you $90 for the value of that $100, thereby saving you $10 or that guaranteed 10%. Because in another month, you might only you might get $200 worth of credits, and we'll charge you $180 for it. So you're always getting that guaranteed 10% savings. There are states, though, like Rhode Island, uh, and really, and soon to be New York, where the credits are being consolidated, meaning that instead of having to pay for credits, you're going to see those credits apply to your bill, and that's it. So as I said, you might get a credit for $100 right now, and we charge you 90 for it in New York. In about nine months, you just might get a credit for $10 applied to your bill, and that's it. Uh, yeah. And so again, the, the beautiful thing about community solar is we're still in that infancy where the, the rules are changing, the policies are changing. Um, you know, We are very active in New York on the billion credit working group um, because no doubt even states like New York and Massachusetts, which have the most mature community solar markets, there's still opportunities to create efficiencies and to find challenges where we're operating on the ground, engaging with the individual subscribers, seeing kind of the pain points that they're feeling relative to how credits look on their utility bill, how bank credits may look, and what all what even bank credits means. Uh, and so we're, we want to make sure that community solar as, as, a, as a program can be optimized for kind of all stakeholders. Um, yeah. But no doubt, each state has their own ways of kind of going about it. So uh, I just want to, one follow-up question. Actually, I'm going to put to, to Noah on this. Uh, well, first of all, Jason, I'm glad you guys understand it because it sounds really confusing. And I'm glad power markets can can help folks like Clean Capital uh, just find those off-takers so we can just just manage the projects. You know, there's, I know you worked on this and I sort of, this is why I'm sort of pointing in your direction. You know, renewables yeah. have faced criticism for not being accessible to sort of all communities, uh, communities of color, social economic status. Mm-hmm. Like what role does, does community solar play in helping to address that and other other efforts yeah. that you've seen briefly that, that is helping to sort of drive that change? I think, um, so, you know, when Jason was talking, I was remembering sitting in my office at the Department of Energy in 2012 or 13, and um, a friendly analyst from NREL, uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory, walking into my office, Dave Feldman, some of you may know, and saying, you know, only about 25% of the people in the country can actually put solar on their roof. The rest is the community solar opportunity. And I, my mind was just like, I don't even know what this community solar is, but that is incredible. And we spent... Um, <laughs> We spent the, the first. My first interaction was it was was fighting with the SEC. Ultimately, I think successfully, to make sure that they didn't consider community solar subscriptions or interests to be securities. And uh, and then shortly after I got to NYSERDA, uh, we got to work um, drafting the order uh, that issued in middle of 2015, authorizing community solar in in New York State. And I'll I'll either take credit for or deny. Uh, having authored some of those words, depending on uh, depending on what the issue is, it is an incredibly versatile tool. That's what I'll say. I'll say that you know, community solar by itself, just as a sort of the fundamental sort of integral model, doesn't necessarily help with the democratization and the access um, to renewable energy for low and moderate income or community disadvantaged communities or others. You have to actually frame the rules around the model in a way and provide the incentives to the market participants to to point in that direction. So in New York, obviously, we have um, a number of um, adders and other incentives that are not just for community solar, but for solar in general that try to drive towards disadvantaged communities, try to drive towards areas um, uh, that uh, that will be sort of, that were, have been historically um, ignored or, or uh, that have been inaccessible for, for, for these purposes. But there's still a long way to go in that regard. Well, you know, cross-utility crediting is is an enormous opportunity for, for example, uh, large large communities uh, downstate, as we say here in New York, who don't have access where there's no, you know, there's very little community solar in Con Ed, as you might expect, right. not a lot of opportunity. But if they can subscribe to uh, facilities that were upstate, um, obviously that greatly expands the ability of community solar to solve some of these problems. There are definitions and questions that get super weedy really fast about uh, what kinds of uh, customers can qualify as either mass market or demand metered and how how those sorts of organizations can participate or, or, or other customers can participate. There's a lot of progress that we can make there to open up uh, community-based organizations and others who may be demand metered but who want to stay at a relatively small 
subscription uh, allocation, you know, allow them to participate at more scale. There's a lot of progress that needs to be made. Um, not, not to, not. I don't want to uh, discount or otherwise minimize the incredible growth in the market, um, both in the states where this has been adopted. I think right. the pipeline for community solar in New York State is far outstrips, frankly, any other other than utility scale, but any other distributed model. Yeah, we're seeing so um, many. John, so I, I was going to jump in real quick because it, you know it's it's all about public implementing public policy to affect that change. And so, while maybe New York and Massachusetts were some of the earliest you know community solar markets, you've got states like New Jersey that are really putting forth the public policy goal of inclusion of low to moderate income uh, participants in community solar, really as a prerequisite to actually have your community solar be eligible to participate in their community solar pilot program. And so, you know, we're involved in the New Jersey program with, you know, uh, some of our clients that have were awarded in that first round. And really, fundamentally, everyone, uh, every developer in that award had to essentially certify that they would have 50 or more percent of that community solar project taken up by members, participants of the low income community. And so that was sort of a directive, a policy directive that was implemented into the rules and so you see that change happening. New Jersey, no doubt, uh, a great example of that. Maryland, certainly. You know, in Massachusetts, you've got sort of a low-income adder. Uh, to the extent you want to get, you know, be incentivized to have those participants on your project. So I think we're seeing kind of that migration, that maturation of community solar policy to bring kind of what ultimately I think all of us want to have happen is truly making community solar for all um, and, and putting it really directly into the rules itself. Yeah, excellent. So... I want to spend a little bit of time on uh, customer demand, but I'm reading so many questions about technology. I, I, I'd be uh, silly not to jump into technology, but just to make a point, I mean, we, we're talking a lot about supply here. You know, one of the biggest game-changing things that have happened this last decade and we're seeing moving forward is, is the change in corporate demand when you've got significant renewable commitments by, uh, by major companies that are not only helping to change the face of the projects being built, but also the policy landscape when they can go into places like Virginia and demand they won't bring their warehouses there or their data centers unless there's clean energy. That's that's a, a factor that could be a, a whole conversation on itself. I do want to jump forward to technology. We have a lot of questions from folks on things like combined heat and power, on uh, renewable natural gas, on fuel cells, really looking at the speed and the change of technology in this last decade. It's not about the amount of efficiency the solar panels have increased in the last 10 years. It's it's about unexpected changes that are outside of our our, our ability to to change, like things like the, the Internet of Things and how the Internet of Things is allowing companies to manage energy as a service on a campus. You know, energy storage would be great, but if you can't manage the deployment of that energy storage because of the way the Internet of Things has, has grown, uh, it'd be much harder to really maximize the financial impact of those deals. So... I want to. I want you to think about technology for a second, and my my question is going to be, you know, and I'll start with, with Zoe, and then sort of go around the horn. What are sort of the one or two really interesting things that you see developing and on the horizon that you think will be not just a, a nascent technology today, but standard practice in 2030? And I'm going to ask you, Zoe. Actually, I want you to focus specifically on bringing new technologies into existing projects, right? Because yeah. we're gonna have, we're gonna have to, PPAs that were signed in 2010 that will be expiring in 2030, but you'll have rooftop, you'll have panels. There's really interesting things we can start to do with it. So. No, absolutely. I think a huge piece of that is, I mean, there's a PPA that was signed 10 years ago that has a 20-year life. You know, so we're halfway through, it's 10 years old. The landscape which that facility sits in could look very different. Um, utility rates have changed. Um, many utilities... Um, have increased demand charges while decreasing their rate for energy. So that can actually sort of skew how a PPA is then perceived or how, how valuable that now 10-year-old PPA is to a rural school district in Colorado, for example. So things like being able to more easily add battery storage to that facility to lower those demand charges, um, you know, often for a small distributed system in a, in a state that doesn't have um, sophisticated or ambitious battery storage policies, that battery storage um, addition is not really feasible as it is right now. So I think there's a lot that can be done on that front that's not just, you know, isolated to Massachusetts and California. We have 
solar all across the country and we're only going to have more. So we need those policies to sort of keep up with that. And then, you know, the lowering of, of how expensive the battery storage is and having the right policies in place to add that on can help quell some of the um, some of the changes that are happening um, on the landscape locally. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. And, and Dorn, Amoresco is one of the unique firms in the space because you're an integrator, right? It's not, you're not just a solar developer or a wind developer, doing energy efficiency, microgrids, storage. You guys are doing really amazing, complex deals. Um, you know, what, what, what sort of excites you sort of the next generation of technology that's going to help uh, you take these projects to, to your customers? So I would say the, you know, look, the expanded deployment of storage and microgrids when combined with either combined or, or solar, and, and certainly there are other technologies that are going to come forward there. That in and of itself is uh, what I see, you know, the, the incorporation of resiliency is going to be a, a really huge piece of this puzzle. Or let's say, you know, fast forward 10 years, you would see the proliferation of microgrids kind of throughout the country. I think a really important component of that, of course, is going to be the pace of deployment that might be driven by the incentive. You know, no, no, I mentioned the ITC for batteries, but you know, honestly, we have to get the cost down. We have to get costs down to where the economics can make sense. You know, Amoresco has had the ability to stay ahead of the technology, often by virtue of the fact that we're installing battery storage and microgrids and solar and CHP as part of a comprehensive you know, energy solution portfolio uh, in its and performance contracts, which means that no particular party is relying on some variable revenue streams to support its financing. The financing is there because of an energy savings and performance contract. We have an installation in South Carolina, Paris Island um, Marine Corps Recruiting Depot. So that just completed its first year of operations, and that microgrid with combined heat and power and solar um, and uh, and battery storage. And, you know, we have been able to measure out uh, some some really, really solid savings of uh, of energy and um, and cost, of course, uh, for the federal government. And, you know, the federal government customer is not your everyday customer for the rest of the country. Right. And so we need to have those incentives in place to allow for the broad deployment. Now, moving beyond that, what do, what do we see coming? Certainly, I think that the green hydrogen is, is going to be a topic of conversation going forward. You know, we need, we need of course, dollars going into research and development, um, you know, bring down the cost of, uh, you know, electrolysis, et cetera, to, to make that something that's actually viable. But again, when you're looking, when you're sitting here and looking forward 10 years, you know, all, all we can talk about is, what we think will move the market toward mass deployment of these technologies, right? It's our job as, you know, I guess, combatants of, you know, frontline combatants of climate change to, you know, turn the theoretical into the possible. So I think yep. we need to direct policy and that's what, that's what will uh, be to the forefront. Can I ask you a question in your CFO hat? You know, the, the ESPC, the energy as a service for folks that aren't familiar, the energy savings performance contract is sort of this, Holistic energy service contract that the federal federal government does, where they pay the cost and they they save energy, and they're allowed to do it. It really hasn't taken off in the public sector as as much, or I'm sorry, the private sector as much as, for instance, PPAs. Right? What do you see? Sort of a emerging financial tool that will allow that comprehensive, you know, for the simplest way to say it, a PPA for a microgrid or energy as a service, becoming uh, more standardized, so that we can finance them to scale here in the next ten years. It's it is coming, John. Um, so where? Wait, tell me how to do it when you're ready. We want to finance. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where where you're seeing where you're seeing it work for the non-municipalities? So everyone can look at the CNI market and understand that you know their planning period, their look forward for where they're going to measure energy savings is maybe five to seven years. Right. Um, you know that's why when you look at the corporate participation in the electricity market. You know, the PPAs are shorter tenor, um, and that's because the planning periods are shorter. So energy conservation measures actually produce good results there. Well, it's the ones that have short payback periods, like lighting. Right. Um, that's where, you know, that's, that's, where, that's where it started to gain some traction. I think that the, um, 
you know, when when you think about some of the other energy conservation measures that, say, the federal government will do, you know, those things actually have much longer payback periods. And as a result of that, um, you know, that's a C&I market. It's hard to apply that. So the, the challenge we have as kind of a finance community is to come up with a product and financing sources that can look past these uh, short-term planning periods and figure out how to customer that there is a financial benefit. And in my mind, the first two things that come to mind. First is, what is the price you can put on resiliency? And right, right yeah. now, that's market by market. The second is, company um, by company. what is the price? Right, true. And uh, the second is, what is the price that you can put on carbon reduction? We don't right. have a carbon tax now. But um, people are publishing papers, a lot of think tanks going after trying to figure out where that sits. And I think that collectively, the finance community needs to really just figure out how it likes and can underwrite the cost of carbon, convince customers that that is part of the equation that they need to be thinking of. Um, You know, when you think about California wildfire season you know, why companies are willing to pay for resiliency. Well, after all of the shutdowns last year, suddenly a lot of the people in my at companies there actually can really get down to dollars and cents of what that costs them to have no power. Right. Uh, I think those are the elements that need to be folded into the conversation now. So I do feel like it's coming. But as I said, shorter payback period um, measures, uh, it's starting to, to gain traction. Uh, but for now, that tool remains popular and, and remains feasible in the, you know, what effectively is the mush market, the municipal, you know, higher ed, uh, university market. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the UT market's taking its own turn with energy as a service. You're seeing some of these concession agreements, large deal by uh, Ohio State, for example, is yeah. kind of setting for future uh future opportunities in the university space. And I think Amoresco, you know, our view is simply, um, look, we, we're going to continue to chase that market as a leading integrator of technologies. We want to be able to, to, to bring that forward, but we are going to continue to maintain relationships with financial partners to allow them to understand and underwrite the financing of those projects. Um, yeah, that's and, great. I, and again, I'm, I, I hate to go back to this again, but John, the numbers have to pencil for these oh, institutions absolutely. to be interested, right? And in order for the numbers to pencil, costs need to come down. And the costs come down with large deployments. And I think the, you know, the United States has a choice here when it comes to manufacturing. You know, are you going to put incentives in place to allow you to be the one who can bring that low cost to battery storage, green hydrogen, whatever it is that's next, so that you don't end up where we are with solar panels today, where China rules the whole thing, because right. the government, took it, they took it and made it their own. Deployments went out the roof, and costs went down. Yeah, fascinating. And I'd add one: and the cost of capital needs to keep coming down, and, and the people are getting more familiar with these technologies. You know, the cheaper cost of capital will begin to move, where there's certainty there. So the more we're proving these out, the the more we're going to hopefully get pension funds and others. Uh, investing in these long-term assets. So I did, we're really short on time here, and I just wanted to, you know, I, Noah and Jason, if you got a, a quick technology you want to reference before we wrap up, uh, offshore. I don't think so. All right. Well, just, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, I'll just say transportation. You know, obviously, oh, yeah. um, it's it's that, that there's a lot of opportunity from a technology point of view there, and and uh, we we're, it's not even worth going much deeper, but. Um, I think on the on the grand in the grand scheme, that is where a lot of the action uh, in the 2020s is going to be on the uh, on the technology side. Yeah, this. I mean, first of all, this has been a fascinating conversation, and and I think we could do this for another hour. There's so many other topics to cover. I really wanted to to thank our panelists for their their insights and thank the audience for for their questions. I um, mean, you can get uh, you can get more episodes of Experts Only at Clean Capital's website, cleancapital.com. Really hope to continue this conversation because you know, as I've said before, I think the last, the next ten years of this, uh, uh, the next decade for our industry is really going to be critical, so we can hit our climate goals. And you know, I really want to thank everyone on the panel today for for their thought leadership on this and the work they're doing every day to help solve this. So thank you.
Thanks, Sean. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you to NECEC and Navigate for, for sponsoring the, the webinar, Katrina. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.